Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here is my friend and colleague, Mickey Enslicht. Mickey, how does it feel to be back? It feels great, you know. Uh, it uh, I, I was very uh, tickled when I uh, when I heard the last episode with you, with you and Alexa. It was a strange feeling uh, to, to hear to hear it as a listener, not as a as a host. But it was awesome. It was great. Uh, but it's also nice to be back in the saddle. And especially back in the saddle with uh, with Ted uh, today, so I'm I'm super super jazzed about uh, the conversation that will will unfold, and and no doubt uh, some Jägermeister shots. It might happen. Yeah. Would Would you like to tell our guests about Ted? Yes. Yeah. So uh, Ted is, I think, only a hin- one of a handful of our, of of our. Um, Guest who's a repeat guest. Uh, so Ted was a guest uh, back in was it January 2019, uh, and I think he uh, the episode uh, was titled uh, "What uh, Science what, what the Sciences and Humanities Can Can Teach Each Other," and I think it was one of our most popular episodes uh, of all time. So um, clearly, our listeners like Ted. We like Ted, and he's just written an awesome new book. Uh, and we want to talk all about it and maybe get drunk together. Uh, so I'll just give you a really quick intro because, you know, I, I did it, you know, not too long ago. Um, so uh, Edward Slingerland is a distinguished university scholar, professor of philosophy, um, and associate member in the Departments of Asian Studies um, and Psychology and director of the Database of Religious History. And I should say all this is at uh, the University of British Columbia. Um, he's the, the director and co-director of too many institutes to name, so I'm not going to I'm not going to bore you all with all the various important things he does. Um, uh, I do want to just note a, a couple of things. Uh, is that uh, Ted is a prolific writer. He is the author uh, of six academic books. I think actually five books, academic books, and one uh, volume that he's edited, um, including uh, Mind and Body in Early China and What Science Offers the Humanities. Um, uh, Ted is also the author of two popular press books. Last time Ted was on, we had a really interesting discussion on his first popular book called uh, Trying Not to Try. Uh, but this time we'll spend uh, the majority of the episode discussing his brand new book. It just came out. Um, it's called Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. So welcome back to the show, Ted. Thanks for having me back. Yes, you know, we know that you're doing the rounds on podcasts and, you know, you know, uh, you were slumming it with Joe Rogan not that long ago. <laughs> yeah. um, so I hope it, it's not too much of a step up to uh, two psychologists, four beers, Ted. It's a little intimidating, but that's what beer, that's what beer is for. It helps uh, take the edge <laughs> off, so that'll help. Excellent. Uh, so maybe with that, uh, Yoel, are you uh, going to actually be drinking a beer today? Yeah, you know, just to spite you, I've really started drinking a lot of beer. So, so yes. Yeah, you know, spite is my motivation for doing most things, including this. Um, so I, I have a beer to, uh, to tell you guys about. This is, uh, a Montreal, uh, brewer called Vagabond. And, uh, this is, uh, this beer is called Soleil Levant and it's, uh, white beer, uh, with, uh, it says it's a Japanese-inspired wheat ale with yuzu, which is an exotic citrus. So that sounds exciting. Mickey, what are you drinking? Well, I'm drinking. Uh, actually, there's a, there's a little story to this beer. Uh, this is well, the beer itself is a collective arts mango and passion fruit milkshake IPA with Simcoe and citra hop. So this is my usual collective uh, arts 
which is the, the lazy, my lazy version of just going around the corner and getting whatever beer is out around the corner. And it's an excellent brewery, so that's fantastic. But this is extra special because uh, a listener, uh, Michael Wall, who's also a professor of psychology at Carleton University in Ottawa, sent this to me. Um, not as a gift, but as uh, my winnings in a bet. Uh, you know, he, uh, it's, it, you know, silly hockey bet. Us Canadians like hockey. And, and, and he, he's from Winnipeg. He voted, he, he bet on his team. I bet on my team. I won. So I've got, uh, this, this, this beer and I think I will enjoy it extra special because, uh, well, because Michael sent it to me for free. So I'm looking forward to drinking it. Free beer always tastes better. I'm drinking a, uh, red collar brewing company, Double. So a kind of Belgian style strong ale that's made in Kamloops. So I'm being patriotic, British Columbian. Very very nice. I I was I'm mildly surprised, Ted, because I thought you were going to uh, to have more uh, uh, Italian wine. No, no. I'm actually trying to be a better better guest. So I'm drinking beer. I got the Jaeger. I I really I went. I made a special trip to BC Liquor for you guys. So yeah, I want to. I'm well, drinking beer this time. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. So the uh, the, the Jaeger, when is that happening? That's up to you guys are the bosses. You let me know. <laughs> it's in the freezer waiting. <laughs> um, all right, maybe maybe we'll like we'll see. Uh, maybe we'll just like call it a surprise. If there's a lull in the conversation, we'll just yell yeah. Jaeger and just like Jaeger. go for a shot. Yeah, yeah. Well, cheers, guys. All right, cheers. I wish we could have like a, you know like a, a an image for our listeners of what you know what I'm looking at here, Yoel. Um, so Yuel is literally in a closet, uh, <laughs> and he's got like a, a black, you know, uh, what the politically correct term uh, for for what you're wearing there, Yuel? Tank top. Tank top Tank is top. what you're allowed to call it. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, and you know, uh, if I wasn't married, you know, whoa, watch it, Yuel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he looks like he's in about a one by two closet <laughs> with this huge electrical <laughs> panel next to him. So yeah, this is. Yeah, this is strictly it is it is strictly for the audio quality and these are the sacrifices that I make for our listeners to get my audio sounding extra clean. I hide in this closet and it is Ted's description is accurate. Um it, there is really not even room to turn around in here. It's like I'm I'm in all of the available space. But the sound in here is great. So, That's you know, good. you can't really complain about that. Right. And it's also it also doubles as a sauna. <laughs> yeah, it's also extremely hot, hence the uh, yeah. the tank top. So yeah, you you guys uh, get a free ticket to the gun show. The listeners are not yeah, so lucky, no. sadly. No, you know, I might Sad. secretly print, you know, take take a screenshot take here, take some screenshots, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is the, the sort of content that our our fans crave. Absolutely, uh, Ted. Remind you're from like originally from Jersey, right? Yeah, I'm originally from Jersey, um, but. I moved to California when I was 20 and spent 16 years there. So I, if I'm from anywhere, I, I consider myself a Californian now. Oh, that's totally aspirational, Ted. Yeah, Listen, you get totally way more credibility saying you're yeah. a Jersey boy. Well, right? I, use, I use the Jersey thing when it's useful sometimes. But yeah. All right. Excellent. So how does a Jersey boy end up as a distinguished professor at UBC? Oh, I don't It's It was a long journey. Um, you know, I have a weird background because I was trained as a humanities scholar. So my, my degrees are in Chinese, classical Chinese and religious studies. But then um, right after I finished my dissertation, I started getting into cognitive linguistics 
So Lakoff Johnson, um, I ended up completely rewriting my first book because of this, this being exposed to cognitive linguistics. And then that got me into cognitive sciences and evolution. And I started just drifting farther and farther into the sciences. And so, you know, these days I hang out mostly with psychologists and um, I'm interested in cultural evolutionary stuff. And so it's hard to know how, how I ended up where I am intellectually. But um, yeah, I was at, uh, I did schooling, most of my schooling in the Bay Area and then was at U, uh, USC in LA for six years, University of Southern California, and then moved to UBC in 2005, I think. So I've been up, I've been up here and now I'm a Canadian, I'm a dual citizen. So um, yeah. I'm a Canadian American living in Vancouver at the moment. Excellent. Um, and you know, given your uh, proclivities and 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 kind of changing interests, uh, especially well, it sounds like almost after you graduate, after you got your PhD. Um, so, how are you seen uh, by your colleagues uh, and other folks in the humanities? Are you seen like as a turncoat? Are you seen as someone who's like bridging bridging various divides? Uh, yeah, how, how are you perceived? I'm mostly perceived as a turncoat, I would say. Uh, most people think I'm a little bit wacky. There, there's, a, there's a minority of people who see the same things that I see, that you know the humanities kind of painted themselves into a corner with extreme social constructivism and postmodernism, and we got to a point where we were really just spinning our wheels, and we needed to get reconnected to reality. And one of the ways to do that would be to engage with empirical sciences. So, so there is there are, some of my colleagues see the benefit of that, um, but most of them are just kind of I might as well be off golfing or something. <laughs> you know, my science humanities book didn't have any effect on my field, as far as I could tell. So um, I kind of gave up on converting humanities scholars and decided to just hang out with scientists from now on. How are you doing at converting scientists into thinking more holistically and thinking more historically? Yeah, well, as we talked about, I think we talked about this last time. I mean, at first, I was so excited to start hanging out with people who were into empirical data and who did experiments and um, clearly were cared about reality and getting things right. Um, but then once I started to see how the sausages were made, I was horrified because, <laughs> you know, I do religious studies. And so I, I started out, you know, hanging out with Ara Noren Zion and Nazim, Sharif, and, you know, look, getting into the cognitive science of literature, uh, of religion literature. Um, and I was just amazed that the model that was being used for what religion is was this completely unexamined Protestantism. You know, it was just, you know, people, it's about belief. Um, it's about self-identification. I saw no concern about language. So I'd go to these talks where people would be presenting cross-cultural survey data. And, you know, I would say, you know, some, one of the questions would be something like, do you believe in God? And I would say, well, how did you translate that into Chinese? And they were like, I don't know. We had some grad student do it. <laughs> and they don't even, you know, they didn't even publish the the different language versions in their supplementary materials. So I, I went from a place where people were obsessed with language to the point that they felt like languages were incommensurable and you could never translate anything to hang out with people who thought that the world was structured in English, that English somehow picked out the ontology of the universe. Um, so yeah, so I have been more last decade or so on more of a mission to 
get scientists to realize that when they're studying stuff in the humanities, religion, or they're doing stuff cross-culturally, they need to, to know a little bit more or at least, you know, collaborate with people who know more. But it's been received well. I mean, I find it's more rewarding because I find that scientists care about getting it right. So if you can point out to them how their survey question actually says something that it's not supposed to say in Chinese or how focusing on belief is really misleading when you're dealing with a religion that's an orthopraxy where it's really about people doing stuff and they don't really care too much about the theology. Um, they they react. They want to get it right. So it, that's that part of it's been rewarding. So, uh, like Mickey said, we we last had you on uh, a couple years ago to to talk about some of this stuff, actually. And I'll, I'll just throw a, a quick like teaser in there for for any folks who um, thought what Ted just said was super interesting. He we got him to talk about it for like two hours uh, the last time he came on, and we will uh, we we'll put a link to that episode in the show notes. So if you want more on that, you can you can go check that out. Uh, but in the couple years since we last talked to you, um, you've evidently been up to stuff, and uh, it seems like you've spent some of that time writing this new book, uh, Drunk. And I guess I'd like to start by asking you, you know, what what got you interested in this, right? Like, what made you think, I want to write a book defending or perhaps even celebrating the effects of alcohol? Yeah, I... Um... It actually, it seems weird, but it's not. It actually, this project grows pretty naturally out of work that I've done before. So the the stuff I talked to you guys about last time, the Try Not to Try book, I think I may have even mentioned this study when we were talking. Um, you know, talking about spontaneity and creativity and trust. And I mentioned, this. Is, I was certainly in my book talk that I gave on Try Not to Try, this 2012 Jerose et al. study. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. They they got people to about 0.08 BAC, and they had a placebo arm as well. And they, they found that people who were about 0.08 did better on um, the RAT. So they were better at lateral thinking, remote associate tests. Um, they were better at lateral thinking than sober controls. And that – so that I that made me start thinking about, huh, something's going on here where uh, uh, this chemical is – could be used in an instrumental way to help humans with an ability that we value, like creativity. And another angle was also the this paradox that I talk about and try not to try. You know, the Chinese are trying to get you into this state of way, you know, effortless action. It's kind of like being in the zone, you're relaxed, you lose a sense of yourself as an agent, and everything works then. You're super creative. You can solve problems. You People like you. People trust you. You relax people around you. So it's a really desirable state to be in. But the problem is how do you, how do you try not to try? How do you consciously try to be spontaneous? And I argue in the book that it's actually it's a direct cognitive paradox, right? The part of your brain you're activating when you're trying to try is the part you're trying to shut down. It's very much like Dan Wagner's uh, point about white, the white bear, right? If I tell you not to think of a white bear, I've just activated that concept and you think about a white bear. So how do you get around? It's a direct cognitive paradox. And one of these texts that I look at, this early Taoist text called the Zhuangzi, Compare, uh, compares a drunken man to the Taoist sage. He, he talks, there's a story goes that someone, someone's coming back from a party or something, he's riding in the back of the cart, 
and he falls off, but he's not hurt. And as Zhuangzi says, he didn't know he was riding, and he didn't know that he'd fallen out. You know, his there's no chance for alarm to arise because he just was oblivious in a way. Um, and this is true, right? You're relaxed in the state of drunkenness, and you kind of roll, you don't stiffen up, you don't hurt yourself. And it's clear that Zhuangzi is using this as a just as a metaphor. You know, he says, if you can make your spirit whole in this way through alcohol, how much more so could you do it through heaven, which is a spiritual force he wants you to get in touch with. But that story always stuck with me, too. And it, 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 it occurred to me that maybe you could use alcohol as a tool to get around the paradox of Wu Wei. So you are in a situation where you know you need to be relaxed, you know you need to be spontaneous, and yet you're, you know that trying to do it directly is not going to work. Maybe alcohol is a kind of chemical tool you can use to just reach in directly and turn the PFC down a couple notches. And that gets you, you have a, a chemical uh, helper to get you around what's, what is a cognitive paradox. So that got me started. I started thinking about how uh, alcohol might be used by cultures in this way. Interesting. Um, so... I got so many questions. I, I, I you know, I, I don't think I, I wasn't nearly effusive enough when I, in, my, in, in the introduction. But this is a fantastic book. I just loved it. Um, I mean, it speaks to me on so many levels. Uh, I mean, clearly the theme of the show is, is well, alcohol is a big part of it. So this kind of really uh, fed my own biases. Um, but so I'm glad you asked that question about why you even, why you even wrote this book. Um, but uh, so I guess. I have two possible questions I want to ask. Maybe one is like, do we even need a theory? Do we even need an explanation? Isn't it enough to be like, hey, alcohol is pleasurable and that's why we do it. There's, not, there's no mystery here. We like, we like things that feel good and, and then we do the things that feel good, period. End of story. Even if, if they have long-term negative consequences, which, which alcohol you know, does have. Yeah. That, so that's a good question. And that's one possibility. And that's the standard story. Right. So when I started to look into the literature on alcohol and other chemical intoxicants, the standard scientific story is that it's an evolutionary mistake. Um, and so, and the, mo the dominant theory is what I, what I call in the book the hijack theory. So alcohol just happens to pick a lock in our brain, right? It happens to trigger reward circuits in our brain that evolve for other reasons. And so we, that's, that's all you need to know. Um, why do we do it? Because it feels good. Why does it feel good? No reason at all. It just happens to randomly feel good. Um, and that's the, I, th I think that is an explanation for some evolutionary mistakes, so some hijacks. So I, I start the book by talking about masturbation, right? That's a classic evolutionary hijack. So orgasm, best thing that can happen to you as a human being all other pleasures are just pale imitations of that. Um, maybe I'm having, maybe I'm doing this wrong because this this episode is the highlight of my life. Okay, right here. so except for that, yeah, yeah so it's true. This this podcast is the pinnacle of human pleasure. But besides that, orgasms are pretty good, and that's because they're really you know our genes reserve the best pleasure for behavior that most directly serves it, their interests, right? And it's got to be the case that statistically, over historical time, orgasms were associated with reproductive sex, which is what our genes want us to do. And yet, we engage in all sorts of non-reproductive hijinks. And, but the crucial thing is that, that they're fairly harmless. Like, masturbation is pretty harmless. No, various types of non-reproductive sex. Blindness. Evolutions, 
Yeah, <laughs> except for the blindness thing, yeah. Um, but that's the thing. So, you know, masturbation, in fact, does not make you go blind. Drinking can make you go blind, right? So the where, where I see a disanalogy, really crucial disanalogy between masturbation and drinking is the massive costs involved in alcohol consumption. So alcohol is a poison. It's hurting our livers. It's increasing our cancer risk. It leads to all sorts of um, potentially negative behaviors. It, alcoholism, so the estimate is that up to 15% of the human population is prone to alcoholism. And if you're prone to alcoholism, you can't drink alcohol safely. And if you, and if you do drink alcohol, there's going to be all sorts of really brutally negative consequences for you and your family and your society. So unlike masturbation, alcohol is really costly. So this is why it's, it is a mystery because you'd, we've been doing it for a really long time. So we've been consuming, we've been producing and consuming alcohol in an organized way for as long as we've been doing anything in an organized fashion. So we've got direct evidence of alcohol production 13,000 years ago in the Levant. And we were probably almost certainly doing it before then, um, probably at least 20,000 years ago. So that's a lot of time for evolution to fix it. If it's really just a hijack or a mistake, if evolution's, if, if alcohol is picking a lock in our brain, there's a evolution should get a locksmith. Is how I put it at one point. There's a, there's a way to, so it should be trying to fix it. And then I raise the possibility, well, you know, maybe it just hasn't had the chance. So it could be that path dependence is tying its hands, right? So it could be that there's some kind of um, evolutionary history that, you know, maybe if it, evolution could start over again, designing our brains, there would have been a way around it. Um, that's one possibility. You know, that's why our backs are so shitty, right? Because evolution was stuck working with a creature that wasn't bipedal to start with and then gradually modified it. Um, that's a possibility, path dependence. And then there's just availability of variation. So it could just be that there's no genetic solution to the problem yet. So evolution can't select for us not liking alcohol because that, that mutation hasn't happened. But it has happened. So I talk about this, you know, the Asian flushing gene, which uh, we, looks like it's been around for seven to 10,000 years in, in East Asia, at least. And when you have this, this combination, it's two different mutations, uh, and they're not even linked. So there's something going on. They're doing something functional. Um, when you have them, you, you don't like, alcohol doesn't give you pleasure. It makes you really uncomfortable. It, it's interfering with the metabolism of alcohol, two-step metabolism of alcohol in our bodies. And you have a couple sips of a drink and you start to flush. You get nauseous, you have heart palpitations, you feel kind of bad. And so, um, you know, why do people drink? The, the kind of glib answer is, well, it makes us feel good, but it doesn't have to. And in fact, it doesn't make these people feel good. And those people should do really well because they're not afflicted by this brain parasite. And yet this gene complex that arose seven, 10,000 years ago in what's now kind of Southeast China. So the end of the Yangtze river, it seemed to have arisen in at the same time as rice agriculture. So there's something going on there. And there's a lot of theories about what the adaptive value of these mutations might be. They may protect against tuberculosis, 
They may also protect against fungal poisoning. So it may have been an adaptation to living in, in dense groups or, you know, eating stored, stored grain in a wet environment. But in any case, they haven't gone very far. They've, they've gone to a little bit to Japan and Korea, but otherwise they just kind of sit there. Whereas you would think if, if alcohol really was just a mistake and a very costly mistake, these genes would spread more widely. They'd spread to everywhere where people may make alcohol, which is almost everywhere in the world. So, so that's why I think there's got to be something going on that we're not aware of on the other side that's, that's functional. Yeah, so, so what might some of those functional benefits be? So, well, we've talked a little bit about the creativity thing. So um, human beings are incredibly dependent, unlike any other species, on creativity. We, we are the tool user, and we can't just, we don't just invent a tool and then sit back. We're constantly refining tools. The environment's changing. We're having to adapt to that. Um, even if the environment's relatively stable, we're in, we're in competition with other cultural groups who are honing their tool sets. And if they can exploit resources in the environment more effectively than we can, we're in trouble. So there's Unlike any other species, we have this intense pressure on us to keep coming up with new stuff. We got to keep having innovations, and and I think that's one of the pressures that alcohol helps with. So I talk about you know I talk about that Droz study. Um, I wouldn't hang my hat on that. When I look back at that now, it was 2012, and it seems to be very much 2012 social psychology. I can see Yoel sneering, <laughs> getting ready for his replication pro critiques of this. Um, it's I wouldn't hang my hat on that study, but there's a big literature um, that converges on this. So um, mind wandering is associated with creativity. And then Michael Syed's work has shown that uh, alcohol consumption increases mind wandering. So you have that connection. You've also got a body of literature showing that the PFC interferes with creativity. So if you can zap it with a transcranial magnet, people do better on lateral thinking tasks. People who have you know damage to the PFC do better on lateral thinking tasks. And then I also look at Alison Gopnik's work on creativity in children. Um, and what you see is, I don't know if you, you, you're familiar with her work, but... Um, yeah, you know, she gives them essentially lateral thinking tasks. So this task where the what is this a blicket, and they have to figure out what a blicket is. And in one condition, it's a very counterintuitive thing. It's a combination of items rather than what you'd expect is a, would be a single item. And four year olds do great at this, and performance declines in a linear fashion with age. And in the book, I lay that graph performance on the blicket test against the development of the prefrontal cortex. And it's basically tracking the development of the prefrontal cortex. So once your prefrontal cortex is fully developed, you can, you're not a four-year-old anymore, which is great. You can tie your shoes, you can get to school on time, you can focus on a task, you can do all the great stuff that the PSC allows us to do, but you're not as creative anymore. And, you know, uh, Allison has this comment in her book where she says, um, children are like the... R&D department of the human species, and then adults are marketing and, and production or something like that. Um, and the problem with that is that, as far as I know, kids have very rarely invented anything useful. Kids, kids creativity is used for bullshit. <laughs> they just screw around. They like, you know, build weird block things. And kids creativity usually doesn't do anything useful. 
because they don't they don't know what's useful for for grown-ups for their culture that they live in and so my argument is what would be great so evolution's got this problem right um it it wants us to get fully functioning PFCs because it wants us to be able to focus and, and be like, you know, wolves really focus on a particular task. Um, but it also, you know, it's, it's giving up this ability to think flexibly. And so I think alcohol, one thing alcohol is doing is it's the solution to that trade-off that evolution made. It allows us to very briefly for a couple hours recapture what it's like to be a four-year-old. You know, we temporarily downregulate our prefrontal cortex and we get that kind of, oh, what about this? Or what if this happened? And yet when the, the alcohol wears off, we're still adults and we know what we should be using our creativity for. Yeah, I thought that was a super interesting um, aspect of the book. And, and for you, almost kind of an aside, but this idea that there are trade-offs where the correct amount of task focused isn't, you know, a hundred percent, right? Because the more task focused you are, the less you're able to like kind of think outside the box. And I think anybody who, who's ever like had a lot of a stimulant, whether that's coffee or something else, like in an effort to like really like, let's say focus on a paper and power through is might've had this experience of like, then you get stuck in ruts though. And like, sometimes you can end up just spinning your wheels because you're just kind of like trying to push, push, push on something that doesn't actually make any sense. And if you take a step back and I don't know, maybe have a beer, you're like, Oh, we can totally like reframe this in this other way that, right. So it's like, helps you kind of break out of this kind of mental set. Um, so I, I mean, my impression is like within psychology that we talk so much about, and Mickey can speak to this, I'm sure, um, to the problems of not having enough mental control, right? So people have willpower failures, they do dumb shit, uh, they can't focus, they get distracted. And, and so kind of naively, if you looked at that stuff, you might think like, oh, well, we just want to crank that to the maximum. And, and the point that you make is like, no, probably not. Or sometimes might be okay. So, you know, the ability to have different substances, right? And so that's the great thing about humans is we figured out how to use drugs in an instrumental fashion. When we need to be focused and, and just power through, we have coffee, we have nicotine. So that's why my book's not about those kind of substances, because those are ones that basically the, they're friends of the PFC, right? They're helping you be focused and on point. And sometimes you need that. But I think people lose sight of the fact that you also sometimes need that other thing. And that's when when substances like alcohol can be useful. I mean, but there are, other, there are lots of other things that one could do to put one in the mindset, a creative mindset. So playing a soccer game, um, listening to music. Um, and I, I suspect music has been around for a really, really long time. So... So why, I mean, you know, and, and as far as I can tell, those don't have the, the same negative consequences that, so listen to music, for example, doesn't have the same negative consequences as, as, as you know, taking drugs or, or drinking alcohol. Why not do it? Why not? Why not do it all? Why not do it all? <laughs> so people generally listen to music while they're in, intoxicating themselves. Um, so there are definitely, there are other ways to take the PFC offline temporarily besides transcranial magnets. You can do it through extreme exercise. So Arne Dietrich, I don't know if you're familiar with his work. He's done work on what he calls hypofrontality. So kind of looking at the runner's high and stuff like that. 
So basically extreme, ex- an extreme exercise at a certain point, your body's like, we don't need the PFC anymore. We don't need any of the <laughs> neocortex anymore. We're just going to stick all of our resources in the heart and lungs and brainstem. And, um, and that produces, a, you know, an intoxicating effect because you, you know, the, the PFC is downregulated. Parts of your brain start communicating that don't normally communicate. Your sense of self-organization is, gets dif- more diffuse. So you can do it through extreme exercise. You can do it through pain. So painful rituals can do this to you. You can do it through sleep deprivation. And so there are religious, so for instance, there are a lot of religions that don't, that frown upon chemical intoxicants. And what you find them doing often is then substituting other stuff like that. So these kind of physically extreme practices that can produce the same effect. So you get, you know, Pentecostals speaking in tongues and, you know, the original account of Pentecostals in the Bible, uh, people think they're drunk. People say, why are these people drunk in the daytime? And um, it's they're drunk on the Holy Spirit, not on alcohol. But it's the same, you know, it's the same effect. They're, they're, uh, they can downregulate the prefrontal cortex through these physical practices. Um, but what a hassle. <laughs> like staying up all night dancing and sticking skewers through your cheeks and flagellating yourself. You could do that. Uh, or you could also have a red collar brewing company, Duba. And which is more pleasant and faster, right? This is faster too. Um, so I just think there's, there are competing technologies, right? But um, alcohol is such an efficient way to do it. And it's so, it's a really, it's, I call it the king of intoxicants, partly because it is almost universal. It really is the, the most dominant chemical intoxicant that humans use. And for good reason. I, f- I feel like if you were a, a cult, team of cultural engineers and someone came to you and was like we need a substance you know like we can't always dance all night and do whirling dervish stuff and um stay up for three nights straight we need something where we could just very quickly sit down drink something and it'll make us feel like x y and z it's got to be easy to make it's got to have very it's got to be precisely dosable it needs to be invariant and its effects from individual to individual. So this is where I think uh, cannabis loses out to alcohol. So cannabis, uh, I know at least one of you is a big fan of cannabis. <laughs> I don't know which one. Yeah, I don't know which one. Um, I My entire life, I've had people pushing cannabis on me and saying, oh, you, you just haven't tried the right strain, man. You got to do this type of sativa. And and it doesn't matter. It's, that's, it's all bullshit. It, Cannabis all has exactly the same effect on me, which is it makes me re- feel really stupid and paranoid, and then I fall asleep. So that's it. I, that sounds delightful. It sounds delightful. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to go to sleep, I guess it's all right. But I have I had friends in grad school who would smoke um, before they went before they did their waitering shifts. Like I, you know, I waited. I worked in the service industry. I'd, I'd friends who would before their waiting shift they would smoke because it made them energetic and talkative and chatty um and that's just inconceivable to me so cannabis has really uh, variable effects on individuals and it's also hard to dose like it's you know you can't if you're not inhaling right you're not getting the drug in the same way um you don't have to teach someone how to drink a beer you just drink it 
and so it's it's easy to dose um so i i agree there are these other technologies and they it's to me it's revealing that when you take alcohol out of the picture you see those other technologies being used more so religious groups that ban chemical intoxicants tend to do a lot of that other stuff they do tend to do really dramatic vigorous ritual activities to try to get the same effect um, in parts of the world where, for whatever reason, they didn't have alcohol, you find them substituting some other chemical intoxicant that serves the same function. So um, in parts of the Pacific, they don't have alcohol. And it's not clear why. Um, Joe Henrik, uh, my former colleague at UBC, um, I don't think he's published this. We've, I think we've just talked about this over beer, of course. Um, but he thinks it has to do with uh, sequitera poisoning. So alcohol, his, he did field work in Fiji. And he said that he's seen evidence that alcohol, if you, you know, the sequitera is this reef fish poisoning. So if you eat a lot of reef fish who have this poison, it builds up in your system. And he said alcohol reacts really badly with that. So he thinks that these this part of the, it's the part of the Pacific that has a problem with sequitera poisoning didn't develop alcohol because of this. But what you find in those places is kava, which is this this tuber based intoxicant that has a lot of the same effects. It's it's relaxing people. People use it. It's used socially in the same way alcohol is used. Um, and in North America, North America is one of the few other places where you didn't have indigenous alcohol use. And that's because I think the functional niche got filled by tobacco, really strong tobacco. So native forms of tobacco are really powerful, mixed with hallucinogens. So it was giving you this kind of um, uh, caffeine, nicotine style high, but also you were on hallucinogens. <laughs> and it, again, it was used in the same way people use alcohol. So it was used social gatherings, um, treaty meetings, anything where people needed to try to get along. So, so that suggested to me that um, there's, it's really doing something functional. And if you take it out of the picture, you need, to, you need something else to do the same functions. Yeah. So you've talked a bit already about the like intrapersonal benefits. Uh, so creativity or lateral thinking, uh, but You've, you're now kind of touching on the social benefits. So can you say a little bit about that? Like, what is that functional role? Yeah, so humans constantly face cooperation dilemmas that go by different names but have a very similar structure. So prisoner's dilemma, tragedy of the commons, whatever you want to call it. Um, but they all have the same structure where rational, self-interested agents are going to get a suboptimal outcome. Because you've got a situation where if you cooperate, everyone's better off individually, but you have no way of knowing if the other person's going to cooperate. And if you cooperate and they defect, you're screwed. Um, and so the you know prisoner's dilemma is is kind of I don't I, I've tended to use uh, 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 things like tuna fishing to illustrate this a tragedy of the commons example. So. Um, we're better off if everyone stops tuna fishing for a year and let the tuna stock re recover. And if we do that, we're all better off individually in the long run. But if I can't know that you're not going to go out and scoop up all the tuna when I'm sitting at home for a year, um, I should go out and get as much tuna as I can right now before the tuna is gone. Um, and so, and the, so rational agents are going to drive the tuna population to extinction because they can't cooperate. They can't trust one another. 
And so we need to get past this trust problem. And there's a couple of cultural technologies that people have used for this. So, um, you know, in our 2016 BBS target article um, that I wrote with Ara Norenzian and Joe Henrik and, and some of our students, former students, uh, we argue that religion is one of these technologies. So particular type of religion, these pro-social religions that where you have morally concerned gods and they can surveil you, they can punish you. Um, people are doing costly displays to show that they really believe in the religion. That's one way to do it. And another way to do it is alcohol. So alcohol is when in, it's doing two things. So it's down-regulating your PFC, which makes it difficult to lie, right? So lying requires cognitive control. You've got to be disciplined. You've got to keep in your mind your lie because it's not true. So it takes some cognitive effort, you know, and working memory to, to keep the lie in mind. Um, what's maybe more surprising is you're worse at detecting lies when you're sober. So, so people who are trying to detect lies underperform people who aren't trying. We, we seem to, there's something about the attention that seems to interfere. I, I think it probably has to do with uh, the fact that we're taking in a narrower bandwidth of information when we're trying consciously trying to detect lies. Whereas if we just relax and take in a broad bandwidth, um, we're going to be better at it. So alcohol, we have the sense that when someone's drunk, they're honest. We're going to see their true self. And so my argument is that in the same way when we meet to meet potentially hostile strangers originally, we would shake hands, right? You put out your right hand, you shake hands to show that you don't have a weapon in your hand. When you sit down and drink a couple shots of something, you're taking out your prefrontal cortex and you're putting it on the table and you're saying, I am now cognitively disarmed. You can trust me. You can trust the things I say. And so it's a way to hamper. So there's this, um, you know, I argue there's going to be this, arms race. The way we trust people is the reason people can solve prisoners dilemmas is because they're not rational, right? They love people. They fall in love. They feel honor and um, loyalty. It's, it's emotions. So I, I, I really uh, lean heavily on Robert Frank, Cornell economist, Robert Frank's work on, you know, passions within reason, um, the way emotions help us overcome these these cooperation dilemmas. And because emotions are what bind us together, they serve as signals. So they're hard to fake. I can usually tell if you're honestly, um, you know, a good friend or you're honestly in love with me. But there's going to be an arms race. There's going to be pressure. If you can be a defector who can actually fake those signals, you're going to do better. You're going to do really well, actually, in a group of trusting people. And that's going to, in turn, put pressure on cheater detectors. So we're going to get better and better at reading minds. So I think the human ability to read emotional expressions is just like the speed of a cheetah or a gazelle. Like you look at it and you're like, how freaking wasteful is that? Like, why, why in the world do you have to run that fast? Um, you have to run that fast because it's the outcome of this spiraling arms race and there, it's being driven by the arms race and our ability to read emotions is driven by that. And in that, in that competition between cheaters and cheater detectors, cultures are not innocent or uninterested bystanders. They want to, they want to favor the cheetah 
They want to favor the cheater detectors. And alcohol is one of the ways they can, they can do that. If people drink together, you're making it harder to lie. You're making it easier to detect lies. And that's why, you know, if you look around at different cultures throughout history, any meeting of potentially hostile individuals where they have to trust one another or come to some kind of agreement is done over intoxicants, usually, usually alcohol. Um, and it's for that reason. And so, and then there's other things. I mean, alcohol is also uh, boosting serotonin. And there's some Molly Crockett's lab has done some work um, showing that if you enhance serotonin, people are just less likely to cheat in, in public goods games or, or prisoner's dilemma type games. Um, and you're boosting endorphins. So you're just kind of feeling more, better about the people you're with. They, they seem more attractive. <laughs> you seem more attractive. You feel more attractive yourself. They seem more attractive. And so it, uh, Michael Syed's done good work on bonding, showing that um, people who uh, small groups are doing discussions where they're consuming alcohol as opposed to a placebo. Uh, you, you look at the, I have, I reproduced one of the photos, a still from one of his, his study videos where you know, these kids are all smiling, real Duchenne smiles at each other. And afterwards, they report feeling connected and feeling liking toward their fellow partners much more than the, the kids who weren't consuming alcohol. So it's this way of um, getting past trust problems and binding people together into groups that, that feel groupish and where people trust one another. So I heard you mention shots. And it seems like this is the time to do this, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I, it would be appropriate. All right. I mean, I think so. I mean, I, I'm feeling a distinct lack of trust. Uh, and, and, and and as much as I'm attracted to you, well, I, I need a, 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 a bit of a boost here. Um, so I got my minus 15 Jägermeister ready. Hi there, listeners. Yoel here. This week, we're being sponsored by Paperpile. Paperpile is a reference manager that runs entirely in a browser. And when they contacted us, I was actually really excited about this sponsorship because I had messed around with it a while ago. I've used a variety of reference managers. None of them have really ever stuck with me. Uh, and uh, I just happened to be working on a big project in Google Docs with a collaborator. And Paperpile began as a reference manager for Google Docs, and it still is. Uh, I, I think the best, easiest way to cite uh, things just from within Google Docs. So you uh, install a Google Docs plugin and it allows you to cite within the Google document uh, and, and certain format citations in the way that a reference manager normally would. They've since expanded. Uh, they have a Word plugin as well. Um, they uh, have apps for iOS and Android. Uh, so you can read the PDFs that you've added to your library on the go as well. One thing that I noticed when I when I tried it out again is their integration with Google Scholar is awesome. So if you have Paperpile installed in Google Scholar, you get a little button that says add to Paperpile. So let's say you do a search, uh, it pulls up some results and you're like, oh, I want to save these four to my library. And you just click the add to Paperpile button. It'll even in most cases be able to fetch the PDF for you. And that just then shows up in your Paperpile library. Uh, the uh, reference manager itself, like I said, is all online. It runs in a web browser. Uh, it works really well. So you don't have to install any software. You don't have to update any software. Often reference manager software, particularly on the Mac, can be kind of clunky and ugly. This looks really nice and it runs any place you can 
run a web browser. Uh, it's also fully collaborative, so you can uh, collaborate with uh, other people, share libraries, and so on. So if you're curious, you can head over to paperpile.com uh, and sign up to get started. Anybody can get 30 days free uh, to play with all of the features and check it out, see if it fits your workflow. Uh, they do have import as well from existing reference managers. I tested that out. It worked really well. Uh, if you're interested in subscribing, it costs $2.99 a month for an individual academic, which would be 36 bucks a year. But if you use our discount code, which is beers, that is B-E-E-R-S, you get 20% off of that price. Uh, so that would bring it down to around $30 a year, uh, which I think is quite reasonable. Uh, so again, if you're interested in checking it out, uh, you can get a 30-day trial for free to play around with some of the features. Uh, that's at paperpile.com. Okay, back to our show. Welcome back. Uh, this is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We're on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. Uh, I all three of us at this point are uh, checking the DMs and mentions at least occasionally. Uh, if you'd like to email us, uh, our show email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Uh, that goes to all three of us as well. Our website is fourbeers.com. You can listen to any of our episodes there and you can drop us a note there too, if you like. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, uh, please just take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. It just helps other people discover the show. Mickey, have I left anything out? Uh, no, I think you did it all. I, I did notice a review relatively recently. It was titled, uh, what was it titled? Something like, Two Psychologists, Three Beers. Sorry, lads. <laughs> and uh, you know, clearly a reviewer after my own heart. Um, but uh, gave us five stars anyways. So... <laughs> I see. That, well, that's very generous. Yeah. You're sure that wasn't just you, Mickey? <laughs> <laughs> it may have been Mickey. No, I, <laughs> no, no, that definitely was not me because I would have given us one star. Right on. Okay. So um, we were, we were going to do shots, weren't we? Do you, Mickey, do you want to set this up? Yes, uh, I do want to set this up. So um, the last time Ted was on. Okay. Back to our show. His first, uh, uh, you know, visit, first time uh, being a guest, he had, he had admitted to his love of Jägermeister, and I too have a strange—I don't want to say love, but uh, but uh, respect for Jägermeister, and we had a shot, and 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 Ted, you know, I think for two years now has been blaming his performance on our episode <laughs> on his Jägermeister shots. And, uh, and 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 I'm like, dude, this was performance enhancing. Um, 
So I think we have to do it again. Uh, so, and what do you have, Yoel? You, you're going to do Jaeger as well, or? No, I happen to not have any Jaeger in the house. And unlike Ted, I'm not dedicated enough to the show to actually go out and- Yeah, I went out and got some. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. You're really like making me look like a piece of shit. Uh, but I, I did not do that. I did not do that. But uh, I do have some tequila in the house and I feel like All that's right, like spiritually, do. you know, that's consistent, right? Yes. Definitely. All right. Are, are we, are we going to do this? Sure. There you go. Yeah, I think we're going to do it. And I expect you both to be more handsome after this shot. Yes. Um, cheers, gentlemen. Cheers. All right. Cheers. So, Mickey, what are you drinking? I'm drinking something called a Deepa, which is a double IPA uh, from Bellwoods Brewery, brewed with Vic Secret Citra and Mosaic Hops. And this one's a little scary because it's 8.8% alcohol. Um, and given that uh, I've already had one, plus the Jaeger, uh, plus the for sure inevitable cannabis that happens at the end of the show, uh, it'll be uh, an interesting morning. Um, what, what, what do you guys got on tap? Uh, Ted, do you want to go? Well, I'm still drinking this. This this is an enormous bottle of of this Belgian double, so it's it's really quite delicious. Nice, and I I can vouch for in, in case there's somebody in the audience being like, oh, he's cheating, only drinking one beer. It's the thing is huge. Yeah, and and, and just in case UL's assurances aren't enough, I also can. <laughs> yeah, because UL's a lightweight. It's true, he's a cheater, so. <laughs> notoriously untrustworthy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, so I have uh, another beer from uh, the same brewery, Vagabond. Uh, this is a Lotus India Pale Ale, and it has uh, it's supposed to have flavors of lotus flower and jasmine. So that sounds exciting. There's a panda on it, which is nice too. So we're gonna crack it open now. Excellent. Cheers. Oh, this is really nice. It's pretty hoppy. Yum. Okay. Yeah, this is. I mostly taste very strong beer. <laughs> <laughs> very strong beer. Um, okay, so I think you know th- th- this. This next question, um, I think, is uh, foreshadowing for uh, at least for, for, for my fate. What, what's going to happen to me um, later tonight? So you've been really kind of uh, promoting uh, and, 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 you know alcohol drinking, and, and, and in the sense that it's been good for civilization for all different kinds of reasons. Uh, it's got all kinds of benefits, uh, but I, you've mostly hedged these claims by saying you're moderately drunk, you know, just barely above legal, uh, what would be considered legally drunk, which is, I think, 0.08 blood alcohol uh, content. Um, What about uh, getting completely shit-faced? Is there anything good to say about getting completely shit-faced? Is there any benefits to that whatsoever? That's a, it's a trickier thing when you're talking about excessive drinking. Um, I do talk about it in the book a bit. So, there's there's partly got to be a costly signaling aspect to it. So there's something about bonding. So I talk about at one point this um, Navy SEAL commander who after basic training, they go through this really intense training process. At the end of it, he takes everyone out to a bar and they get really fucking drunk. <laughs> they do tequila shots and it's serious drinking. Um there's something, there's got to be something going on there that's similar to just hazing or other types of initiation rituals. So you're, you're doing something where you're really disarmed. You're cognitively completely disarmed. You are also, everyone knows you're going to experience intense pain the next day. 
And something about the willingness to do that with other people has got to have a pro-social effect. So you're, you're bonding in certain ways. So that's, I think that that is a function. There's also something to be said for occasional, I call it at one point vacations from the self. So there's, um, this is, and this is where it gets into, so there's two separate functional stories you can tell. One is the evolutionary one. So in the evolutionary story, individual pleasure can't be part of the story because, you know, evolution doesn't care if we're happy or not. And in fact, probably prefers that we're not happy. That's <laughs> why, so, you know, the hedonic treadmill and all these other unfortunate tendencies that we have are because evolution wants us to keep running on the treadmill. Um, so you got to tell to explain why, for instance, this Asian flushing gene hasn't taken over, why prohibition, cultural evolution hasn't, you know, fixated on prohibition. You have to tell a functional story. There have to be real functional benefits to alcohol. But at the end of the book, I try to focus on also just we're not our genes. So from our perspective, in addition to the functional benefits, pleasure matters for us. Uh, we, we, we are not our genes. We, if, you know, we like to masturbate, and we don't think it's a problem. Um, we like to get pleasure, jolts of pleasure where we can, even if it's not serving our genes' interests. And so there's something, there is something to be said for occasional vacations from the self. And this is, I think it's part of the appeal of hallucinogens. So every once in a while, really shaking up your, your model of yourself and your sense of reality could possibly be helpful for individuals in a way that's not really related to, I don't think, evolutionary adaptation. And occasional benders could do that too. Occasionally, um, really tying one on with some friends could be a useful uh, safety valve or relaxation of attention that could be pleasurable for people. But the reason I don't focus on that in the book so much is because there's, that's where the dangers come in, right? It's, it's that really high BACs that bad shit happens and a lot of bad things can happen. So it's, uh, you know, the, the last chapter of the book is all about what I call the dark side of Dionysus, the, the, um, you know, Dionysus, the god of wine, gives gifts to humanity. He's important. That's why he's a god. But the gifts are often complicated. So he's the one who gave Midas the golden touch. So, you know, you want gold? Okay, I'll give you this gift. Everything you touch turns to gold. And then it turns out that didn't work very well for Midas. So there's this dark side to Dionysus. And almost all of the positive functions that I talk about when it comes to alcohol have negative consequence have negative flip sides. So we were talking about this during the break, right? The 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 negative so getting rid of your PFC and thinking about all sorts of different possibilities is great, but it leads to lots of bullshit, right? <laughs> you believe in asteroids and ancient civilizations and just ridiculous stuff. Um, there's a reason we have the PFC. So there's a downside to the creativity um, function. There's a downside to the bonding function. So we go to the bar and we do a couple of shots and we start to like each other more and we share things about ourselves personally we would normally share. We let down some barriers. Uh, that's great. What We're creating an in-group that then is defined in contrast to an out-group. You know, those boring people who went home early. Maybe those boring people who went home early are women 
who weren't thrilled about being at the hotel bar with a bunch of dudes doing shots of tequila. Maybe those boring people who went home early are Muslim and they have religious reasons they don't drink. Maybe they have to go to bed early because they have to get up in the morning and pick up their kids from, you know, take their kids to daycare. You know, they have a long day of childcare the next day. They don't have the luxury of hanging out at the hotel bar drinking after work. So there's this, um, there are these negative sides to alcohol. And one of the tricks of, I'm arguing the book, one of the, the things we have to figure out is how to harness the positive functions while trying to mitigate the downsides, right? And there are lots of downsides. Yeah, so I want to talk a little more eventually about, you know, today, what should we do? What's what's the optimal policy? But I mean, first, I'm curious about um, temperance and prohibition movements. So I, I mean, you mentioned um, that there are these real negative consequences. And that's obviously what these movements have have highlighted. Um, in the West, we we tend to think of those as, as failures, right? In, in the US, we tried to ban alcohol, and it did not work out. And we undid it. Uh, that's not always the case, right? So the kind of biggest counterexample is is the Muslim world, where at least nominally, um, alcohol is, is a no-go. Um, you might also think about uh, Mormonism, which basically, like, it's, it's not just alcohol, but also caffeine. So what can we say about, like, where kind of temperance or prohibition movements have been tried? Do they tend to succeed or fail? Is there anything we can say about, like, when are they more likely to stick versus not? Yeah, so people have been trying out prohibition since we've had alcohol. So as long as we've had alcohol, we've been worried about alcohol. And so one of the earliest legal statutes we have is from early China. And it states that anyone caught consuming alcohol will be put to death. So they're pretty hardcore about prohibition, at least, again, at least in theory. And yet this was, I think this this statute was found on a tripod and tomb that contained these massive wine vessels and other alcohol. That, so the Chinese just kept drinking. They, they never slowed down. So prohibition has been not super successful. It's been tried for a long time. And it's, again, if alcohol is only costly, <clears throat> it's surprising that this cultural evolutionary solution to the problem hasn't been more successful. And it really hasn't. So if you want to talk about the the Muslim world, um, Islam has been kind of not super consistent about enforcing that ban. So depending on the time and place, alcohol has been consumed, at least by elites, pretty openly. Some of the most beautiful wine poetry that we have comes from Persia, comes from Persian Muslims who were drinking wine openly and celebrating the virtues of wine. So again, if if prohibition is a kind of cultural evolutionary silver bullet. It's surprising that it hasn't been more consistently applied. Um, I also in the book uh, talk about this historical, really interesting historical encounter where this, this is in the 700s AD and this Muslim uh, ambassador to what's now Russia, to a ruler in what's now Russia, um, is is going to, I think basically this is a new convert to Islam and he's going to basically just check up and make sure they're doing things right. And he, while well, they're camped one night, they meet a group of Vikings 
And this is one of the earliest accounts, outside accounts we have of the Vikings. And he's really impressed by their height and their fierceness. You know, they're really impressive warriors. But he's absolutely horrified by their drinking. And we have good evidence from, from Viking sources that this is not inaccurate. They, they drank wildly every night and during the day. They were kind of constantly drunk. They were, you know, falling in fires and burning themselves. They were getting into drunken fights and hurting each other. They were hung over in the morning. And he was just, they were, they seemed to him like. Sounds like one of UL's parties. It sounds like one of UL's parties. Um, and yet, the Vikings did pretty well. You know, some a pretty good proportion of residents of Northern Europe are descendants of the Vikings, and they, you know, sailed to the New World. And so if you wanted to pick out a successful cultural group, the Vikings would probably be one of them. And yet they used alcohol in this, this really um, kind of extreme end of, of alcohol usage. And so I love this encounter because here's Islam encountering this culture that uses Islam, a culture that at that point is not using alcohol, encounters this culture that is using alcohol in a super excessive way. Why did Islam not take over all of Europe? Why didn't they take over Viking territory? So it's, it suggests that there's, you know, there were these benefits to alcohol that we, um, we don't see when we're looking just at the costs. Um, so, so, and then if you talk about the, the case of the Mormons, the Mormons have been pretty consistent since they decided. So they weren't, uh, against alcohol at the beginning, but Joseph Smith at, at some point had a revelation. Um, I think it was sometime after the revelation where God told him he could have multiple wives. Um, so he went to his wife at the time and was like, yeah, God told me that I can have other wives. And she was like, really? And he's like, yeah. Honey, God said it. <laughs> unrelated to his alcohol consumption. <laughs> yeah, unrelated to his alcohol consumption. And then he had a separate revelation where God said you can't um, consume intoxicants. In that case, I think it's really revealing that they're banning all intoxicants. So as you all mentioned, they're banning caffeine and nicotine as well. If this were a cultural evolutionary fix for the problem of alcohol, they would confine that ban to just intoxicants, things that mess with your PFC. But it's everything, which suggests to me that it's really functioning more as a group marker. It's a costly display. You know, here are a bunch of things that other people do around you that are really appealing to do, and you're not allowed to do them. So it really is functioning, you know, in, in cognitive science of religion, we talk about these kind of costly displays and markers of group identity. I think that's what it's doing. It's not really targeted at alcohol per se. It's a, it's a differentiating marker. You could think of it as more analogous to circumcision. Yeah, like circumcision. Well, circumcision also is pain, right? It's painful. It's really, it's, you can't go back on it. <laughs> so yeah, it's a good, that's a really good group marker too. Yeah, that's right. You can quit being Mormon and start drinking again, but <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. quit being a Jew is not going to help you come with back, the foreskin. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the you know the the failure of prohibition is is revealing to me. It really cultural groups that ban alcohol should just do so much better than ones that don't. And yet, you know, and I don't actually have this in the book, but in this talk I prepared on the book, I have a map of where prohibition is in effect right now. And it's not very widely, it's very small number of countries. They're all Muslim. 
Um, it's a pretty small percentage of the world population. So that should puzzle us more than it does. Um, I wonder, Ted, does your map of the places that you know have thought about prohibition include Brooklyn? <laughs> it doesn't include Brooklyn. Doesn't show up on that map. Yeah. I, well, but the reason I ask is because it seems like, at least among some you know circles, there's like what some might call a modern temperance movement. Um, a movement, you know, to, you know, to consider the costs. Um, of course, we know about the, the obvious costs that you've you've already you know referred to, in terms of alcoholism and, and premature deaths for for all for various reasons would be driving, um, cancers, uh, you know, what have you, um, and you know, so there are these costs, and uh, and 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 especially, you know, bureaucratic kinds of institutions have started thinking about these costs very, very seriously, and other costs, not just the health costs, but also costs in terms of like the the, the probability of sexual harassment, the the, the, mm-hmm. the probability of there being coercion of, of all different kinds, um, and you all and I have experienced this firsthand, where we. So I, I, be, I believe you were at one of our one of our pubs. So uh, we have a a seminar series every Tuesday, uh, which we adore. Uh, you know, uh, you know. And after it's a Tuesday afternoon, and after it's around four thirty five o'clock, we all kind of go to a pub, mm-hmm. and people drink. People don't drink. Doesn't really matter. You go. You drink. You eat. You have pop. Doesn't really matter. Um, but the university is now starting to put pressure on on organizations such as ours to be like, hey. There's a problem here, um, yeah. and there are there are dangers involved with the pub, and in fact, we don't think you should be doing it at all. Um, so, of course, I'm very bothered by this, but uh, you know, what mm-hmm. do we what do we lose with with you know or or gain uh, for that matter uh, with this modern temperance movement? That was this is one of the motivations for writing the book, actually. Because I think when we're making policy decisions about, you know, should university events be completely dry? Should professors, you know, should there be a just blanket ban on professors consuming alcohol in the presence of graduate students or undergraduates? The way the calculus gets thought about right now is on the one hand, you have all these obvious costs. There are obvious costs, you know, besides, you know, physical dangers of liver damage and cancer there's drunk driving there's sexual harassment there's all these bad there's loss there's basically from the university's perspective it's just lawsuits (laughs) there's a whole list of potential lawsuits that go along with alcohol consumption and on the positive side it's what right it's fun maybe and that's fun when fun is pitted against a whole list of possible lawsuits, fun is always going to lose. And so that's why I think we need to be clear about what's on the other side of the equation. So what you lose, if you make university events, if you make professional events, if you make conferences completely dry, you're going to lose a lot of stuff. You're going to lose all of the kind of, uh, I mean, so in the book, I talk about the the big partnership grant we got at UBC. So me and Joe Henrik and Arnorn Zion and Mark Collard, who's at SFU now, um, and a bunch of other people we would meet at, we, for a long time, there's no place to drink on the UBC campus. And then this pub opened, Mahoney's, and it was right near the, the bus loop. And we would meet there on Fridays and, uh, no agenda. We would just drink some beers and chat. 
And, you know, $3 million grant came out of that. And the BBS article, which won the Daniel Wagner Award, Innovation Award, came out of that. Um, it was an amazingly successful and unusual interdisciplinary collaboration that I think would not have happened without alcohol. Because, you know, you you not only relax and kind of think more creatively, but because your inhibitions are down, you're less worried about saying something stupid. So, you know, I would say something about cultural evolution in front of Joe, and that's not my field, but, you know, I had this idea. And then he would say, oh, yeah, you know, there's something that I know about that relates to that. You'd lose all of that. Um, and that's a, it's a real loss. And so you have to weigh then, you know, is that loss of innovation and bonding worth the the benefits which is you're reducing sexual harassment and you're probably reducing inequality because you know it, the fact is that that pub gathering on fridays we were all dudes it was you know we invited female colleagues to join but um you know i think guys get more of a, a pass in terms of on a friday afternoon if you can't do daycare pickup because you're drinking at the pub it's a little bit more acceptable for men than women um, there may have been, you know, I could imagine a woman being uncomfortable wandering into that environment. So this is the problem is how you, how you balance, you have to see that there are benefits and you may even seeing the benefits end up saying, you know what, um, we care about equity and we care about safety. And so overall, all things considered, we don't think this is a good idea, but I, I just want university administrators and department heads and people in, and people who run co professional conferences and are in position to make policy mm -hmm. on this actually be aware of what's on the other side of the equation, what it is that you're giving up. And then you've, you know, there are various strategies for mitigating the downside. So, you know, as you said, if there's pop available, if there's water available, if there's, if there's not pressure to drink, like if there's no, comments about oh you're not doing jaeger what's the matter you know if if people feel free to not drink alcohol that helps um if you hold it at a time that is friendly is family friendly so you know we're not going to do this at 10 o'clock at night <laughs> when only unattached men who don't have to do child care are able to do it um let's do it you know in the afternoon let's do it late afternoon before dinner when people who have kids can still do it um there's, there's ways to manage it where we respond to legitimate concerns about the ways in the past that this has been a, a really sometimes pathological culture um, while still capturing the benefits of it. Amen to that, uh, Ted. I mean, I, so in my no doubt biased estimation, I believe our students remember the pub and the conversations around the pub and the, the actual intellectual discourse around the pub far more than the actual seminar itself, um, where there's limited room for interaction, there's limited room for questions, and people are shy and people are a bit intimidated by asking you know, a big-name person a question. But you sit down across from someone with a beer in your hand all of a sudden, you feel okay to ask that question you were so intimidated to ask, you know, 35 minutes before. Um, 
And I feel it would be a true loss if uh, if this pub was to, to go, and there's a real risk that it might. Yeah, so what I think is great about this uh, kind of the affirmative case for alcohol, Ted, that you make is – you know, you have these big institutions that are inherently about risk management, mm-hmm. right? So they're always going to be looking at the downside. And and that's sort of their job, right? It's the university administration's job to make sure that they don't get sued and that there's not sexual harassment and so on and so forth. That's good, right? But that's always going to be their perspective. And I think like you alluded to, if you, you know, you do need to push back against that a bit. Um, but if your only reason to push back is like, well, it feels nice and we enjoy it, that doesn't really count, yeah. right? And, and it, it makes people sort of embarrassed about about pushing back, right? Um, and and it's it, it can feel hard to to argue against all of these like very real negative consequences. But if you're like, look, it has these real benefits to kind of intellectual and social life, that's a better case to make, I think. Yeah, and that's the case they respond to, right? They they're about managing risk, but if you can show them that there are benefits to weigh against that risk, that matters to them. And that's where you could point to things like this. So I talk about this study. Um, it's still unpublished, I think, by this economist who looked at counties where uh, they were previously wet, and then prohibition got imposed on them when in the U.S. and uh, Patent applications fall by 15% right after prohibitions imposed. And then it's interesting that after about three years, they rebound to their former levels. And his theory is what's going on is the saloons got closed down, but then people figured out speakeasies and ways around it. But that's pretty good. It's correlational, right? But it's pretty good evidence that innovation depends on people drinking socially. And and Mickey's right, you know, in a in a formal seminar environment, it's it's awkward to speak. You can be intimidated, um, people are looking at you. If you can downregulate your PFC a bit with a beer and you can boost your serotonin and endorphins, that might give you the confidence to ask, you know, the big famous visiting speaker or something that that Maybe they hadn't thought of, or maybe that will teach you something new. So I, I always thought I had the same experience in grad school. Like we had a, a year long seminar one year where uh, it was in the afternoon, and afterwards we'd go to the university pub. So pretty much everyone in the seminar just went from the seminar room to the pub, and the professor would buy a couple pitchers of beer, and we would sit and talk. And often we'd be off in our own little groups, these long benches, just chatting about random stuff. But that's where that's where a lot of stuff happened. That's where I feel like I learned a lot of new things. And um, so, yeah, you have to if you're if you're making this this case, it can't just be pleasure, even though it's pleasurable. You have to make the case that innovation suffers. And this is the case too for in-person conferences. So you know, I've heard a lot of talk about, well, you know, carbon footprint and, you know, we've, we've seen that we can have successful online conferences. So why don't we just always do SPSB online? Um, fuck that. Fuck that. And, but why fuck that? Right. It's because the reason you go to SPSB is for meeting people for drinks, frankly, um, or meals or whatever, but you go for the social interaction 
And that's where interesting stuff happens. That's where bad stuff can happen, but it's also where interesting stuff happens. There's this, I mentioned in a footnote, the study of, um, there's this one really interesting study of this political science association, and it looks at publication records after, uh, I think it was Hurricane, uh, one of the hurricanes that interrupted, they basically had to cancel their annual meeting in New Orleans. Um, and you could be sure that that would have involved a lot of socializing over drinking. And in the, in the midst of that in-person annual conference, in the aftermath of that being canceled, uh, co-authored publications in the field went down by a certain amount. So, you know, there's evidence that you just don't, you don't meet the people you would be like, you know, I'd meet Mickey and find out we'd start drinking and he'd be like, yeah, I'm thinking about doing some work with cannabis now. And, and then I'd be like, oh, well, I have this, whatever, I have an experimental um, design that I was going to do with alcohol, but it'd be interesting to do it with cannabis. We would never talk about that unless we're sitting down having a beer somewhere in person. So I, I really think that the, um, you know, it's the reason that you know, when Skype was invented, everyone was like, oh, well, business travel is going to just stop because why would you fly to China to meet your colleagues when you can just do it over Skype? And yet business travel until COVID remained unchanged. And it's because if you're going to sign a contract with people where there's any wiggle room for things going sideways, you're not going to do it until you sit down with them for a meal and a lot of alcohol, because then you feel like you, you know who you're dealing with. And so, and so I predict actually that business travel is going to just rebound to previous levels after COVID restrictions are lifted. Um, and I think that as academics, we have to, we have to push back against this kind of zero carbon footprint. Why should we go to in-person conferences thing? Um, in-person, in-person sociality is crucial. And, and I think that COVID has, we're going to see, I, I feel like we're going to see when we look back at this five years from now, how damaging COVID was to our fields to creativity, to research innovation, because we lost this ability to interact in person. Yeah, so I, I think that really gets at the value of stuff that's just harder to quantify. And I love this political science study for that reason. I actually had missed that footnote, but that's a, like a very clever way to get at it. But if you're SPSB, for example, you can say like, well, you know, X talks given, X professional development sessions, this many audience members, we can check all those boxes online. Yeah. What's a lot harder to measure is the value of like the collaboration that started because you ran into somebody at the bar and you're like, hey, what are you working on? Oh, I'm working on that too. Yeah. And it, even we, I mean, I, I have a bad memory, so I forget, right? But I, I think that's kind of, I think it's probably more common that you forget exactly how that started. No, and you then do. When you, yeah, yeah. Right? And you replay that and you're like, oh, actually, it was just this happenstance of like, I happened to run into that person. We happened to start talking about this thing. And that led to this really productive uh, collaboration. Yeah, I wonder if people really had good recall what percentage of successful collaborations started with a beer. You talk a little bit about, you know, alcohol substitutes and the cultures that for whatever reason, alcohol doesn't predominate there but they they have other um they have other kind of intoxicants that sort of fill that general 
role. And I, I'm curious, like, so what are the kind of upsides and downsides of the substitutes, right? So if you think about cannabis, for example, like, does that neatly slot into like an alcohol replacement? Um, and what about something kind of harder core, like uh, if you're talking about like uh, an opioid, like uh, heroin, yeah. um, psychedelics, like you mentioned, uh, and this was a fascinating thing that I learned from the book, um, is that North American indigenous people, when they smoke tobacco, they cut it um, yeah. with psychedelics, right? So do, do those kind of like is sort of like cleanly substitute for alcohol or are there kind of uh, trade-offs involved there? Yeah, I don't think they do, which is why alcohol is the dominant drug. There are downsides to all these other substitutes. So cannabis, as as I mentioned, is has really variable effects and it's hard to dose. So it's just hard to use socially in that regard. Um, if you want to talk about psychedelics, um, they psychedelics this is I bring psychedelics up at the end of the book because it's possible that now they could be a useful substitute. So psychedelics in their natural form, so in the form of psilocybin mushrooms or whatever, um, uh, mescaline, are just super powerful. So they're really dissociating you from reality. And so Michael Pollan in his, his book, his recent book on psychedelics at one point compares the effect of psychedelics on cultural evolution to mutagens on genetic evolution. And I, and I quote that in the book. I think it's a great analogy, right? So um, psychedelics completely scramble shit up so that you're, you're making wild connections you would never make. And he points out that like a genetic mutation, it's usually bad. It's usually useless. But every once in a while, you get a useful mutation that then maybe uh, selection can work with because it's something really new. And so <clears throat> I don't I actually don't say this in the book but I've thought about it since that one way to look at that is when we're talking about cultural evolution psychedelics are like a high risk high payoff strategy. I'm going to really scramble things up and connect things that are really not related to each other at all. And 99% of the time that's going to be complete nonsense, but maybe every once in a while there'll be something really cool and really new. The way to look at alcohol in that context is that it's it's a low risk but and low payoff but more reliable payoff strategy. So when we gently downregulate our PFCs, we start thinking of new things, but we're not completely disconnected from reality. So we're going to have new ideas, but they're going to tend to be relevant to the problems we're actually trying to solve. You know, if we if we meet at SPSP and we're talking about your research project and we have a couple beers, we're going to tend to have new insights about your research project and ways you could do it better. If we if we do psilocybin mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be oh you know, running naked on the lawn of a conference <laughs> hotel. It's not going to be related to what we were talking about. And and you can't, certainly you're not going to take um, potentially hostile groups of, of men and sit them down at a treaty table and give them mushrooms, right? Um, they may end up liking each other more at the end of the day, but they're not going to come up with a treaty. So, so alcohol is really a, in, in a way the Maybe MDMA. Yeah. So maybe MDMA, but MDMA is technically is really a stimulant. I mean, we, yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it really just is 
making you feel really good and really focused. Um, so maybe that would be useful too. But so one thing I mentioned at the end of the book is that this, this trend of micro dosing, and I just think it's too new to really know how it works, but it's possible that now that we have the ability to separate the psychoactive parts of psilocybin mushrooms and synthesize them and then make them in precisely dosable pills, maybe doing, you know, kind of sub super psychedelic levels of these, these substances will give you the same effect that you get with alcohol, you know, it's kind of gentle down regulation of the PFC, gentle, gentle ev- elevation of mood in a way that doesn't have all the downsides of alcohol. Cause um, what we know about psychedelics is they're not addictive and they're a lot less physiologically harmful than alcohol. And they're super fun. And they're, and they're super fun. Mickey, how have your microdosing experiments gone? Oh, is he doing that? Oh, yeah. I've been, I, I, I'm, I'm currently on a, like a two-month regimen. Um, they've been fantastic, actually. I think they're like, you know, qualitatively different than uh, what you're describing, Ted. I, I, okay. I do find them more stimulating. I do find them more energizing. So I get more energy, uh, certainly a better mood. I don't know about creativity. Um, that's just me. Um, okay. But uh, it, it, it's a nice thing to try. How long have you been doing this? Well, I've experimented a little bit. Like I, I, I first tried microdosing about uh, maybe a little bit less than a year ago. Uh, but in the past two, two, three months, I've been doing it like every second or third day. What are you doing? Is it mushrooms or LSD? Yeah, it's uh, psilocybin. Interesting. Yeah. So I've tried both and I found LSD to be actually quite speedy and a little bit like having taken like a Ritalin or an Adderall or something like that. So like Mm -hmm. good for productivity, but not really great for creativity. Whereas mushrooms were more like, I don't know, I chill and positive mood inducing. So you've, you've microdosed psilocybin. Yes. Okay. I've also yeah. macrodosed psilocybin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've done a lot of macrodosing of psilocybin yeah. in my day, but yeah. No, I tried microdosing LSD once and it felt like a, an annoying trip. It was like everything bad about a trip. Like I had trouble focusing. It was a little speedy in a, in a kind of bad way. Um, and none of the good stuff. So for me, it was horrible. But it's possible I took too large a dose. I don't know. Um, Maybe. My dose is like a, it's almost like a tenth of a dose. And, okay. Uh, it's barely perceptible. It's definitely, you know, it's there. Uh, and it's energetic. Uh, there's definitely, I, I, but I think it's more of a, more of a stimulating than relaxing uh, for me at least. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts there, right? So there's the dosage, first of all, but then something I don't know at all is how big is the variation between people in how they respond to to LSD? So is it the case that, you know, uh, Ted and I take the same dose? For me, it's sort of mood enhancing and a bit focusing. And for him, it's he feels anxious and uh, overstimulated. Yeah, I wonder if, you know, people who do psychedelic research talk a lot about set and setting. 
And so I wonder how much it, it's related to that. And when I, I mean, when I used to do psychedelics back in the day, um, in my twenties in San Francisco, um, both of those were super important for me. So I do it on a day when I felt good and I was, you know, kind of ready to have an experience and I would do it in some, on a nice day, the weather had to be good. And I would do it in some place of natural beauty. So I'd go up to um, Mount Tam if I was going to go somewhere closer. If I was more ambitious, I'd go up to Point Reyes and I had this, this part of Limitor Beach where I would do it. Um, and so that's got to be a factor. So if you're doing it in an environment that's weird, you're going to have a weird experience. But, but I don't know much about what the individual level differences are. So, Ted, have you ever had a bad trip? No, I had one trip. Well, let's say I, I had one trip on mushrooms where I did. Uh, my friend and I went up to Mount Tam and we had these small Liberty Cap mushrooms. And we thought because they were small, you should take more. It turns out it's not, it's actually not the way it works. Um, and that was a really intense trip. And I turned into a lizard at one point. And uh, the, the, this tree, this beautiful California live oak that we would sit on near um, opened up and the gates of hell opened up and demons came out. And uh, oh, no. it was pretty intense. But but the end was great. I mean, the, the end I came, I had what seem like, um, interesting insights. Um, tripping is a funny thing because it's, you know, most of, I talk about this in the book a little bit that, um, most of the explicit insights that you have are nonsense. So, you know, I, it may have been this trip where I wrote the, this essay, I, I would always bring a notebook with me and I wrote this essay called truth is the color blue. <laughs> and I was in grad school and I was convinced that I had solved everything. And when I published this, that was it. Like they were going to give me, Stanford was going to give me my PhD and make me a full professor because I had solved <laughs> the problem of everything. It's just the color blue. Um, and it was like a 20 page essay and it had diagrams and mathematical equations and, <laughs> and, you know, of course I, when I, the next day when I looked at it, I was like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to publish that. Um, <laughs> so, so a lot of what's produced is nonsense, but then I think from that same trip, I, I came back with some genuine insights about, you know, my personal relationships at the time and, um, maybe what I wanted to do in my maybe what i wanted to do in my intellectual life in a way that wasn't you know directly dependent on the truth being the color blue but you know shaking shaking things up cognitively i th i think is healthy to do every once in a while definitely i agree i, I had this i had this uh I, I good some good friends in grad school and 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 they would sometimes pressure me to 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 to, part, to drink more, and I'm like, oh man, no, I I can't do it. But they would always, you know, benefit me from being like, you know, Mickey might have a ceiling on how how often he wants to, you know, get drunk, but he has a floor as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. In the sense that, like, you know, I I do I actually I agree 100 percent with you. I I think there's like, you know, if you don't escape your own mind, your own self, every once in a while, I I I just think it's not healthy. I think you need you need that escape. You need you need like some release from from this prison. Absolutely. All right. I think that's a beautiful place to end it with the uh, 
the prison the release of, of the prison of Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> the prison of being Mickey. That might just be my own mind. Um, it's, it's terrible to be in Mickey's head. I'm so it. sorry, so, man. So my, my next trip is going to be me trapped inside Mickey's brain, <laughs> and I can't get out. <laughs>